0: you know, I've had the, um, I was thinking about as I was preparing for this message today, the fact that 23 years ago, a little over 23 years ago, I stood in this very spot with a beautiful woman, and I said, I do. I do. Now, it wasn't hard to say I do, and let me tell you why. Because when I saw her and all of her beauty walking down that aisle towards me, knowing that this was the woman that God had prepared for me and seeing all the beauty it was easy for me to say I do that day but do you realize that every marriage has its ups and downs do you realize that the challenge is not the I do on the wedding day it's the living the I do out from day to day those of you who are married know what I'm talking about right So I've had the privilege and the honor to um, help facilitate many marriages over my time as a pastor. Um, I just did one, uh, and they're back from their honeymoon, so welcome back Chase and Amber. They're sitting right there. Say hi, everyone. If they're glowing, it's because they were in Hawaii for their honeymoon, and and they've had a great time. Uh, They just got married a couple weeks ago, and so um, that's exciting. And as I prepare couples for their wedding... I do some pre-marriage counseling and, and they can tell you, and the other couples, I've done many in this room, can tell you that I don't spend a lot of time talking about how to say I do on the wedding day as a counselor. Because I understand the truth that it's a lot easier when you see the beauty and you're excited and you're in love and you feel like, man, this is the right choice for me, that it comes naturally to say I do. Because you recognize something that's true and that's good, and that's beautiful, and you're excited about it. So as a pastor, I don't spend a lot of time talking about, well, this is what you really need to do on that wedding day. You need to say, I do, when I give you this instruction, right? No, that comes a lot more naturally. But what I do spend time on is giving them tools and equipping them with, what does it look like to be successful in everyday relationship? What does it look like to make sure you maintain the I do for a lifetime? Because that can be challenging. Can it not? So so that's an exact analogy of what's taking place with John. He had written his gospel, the gospel of John. Guess what he wrote it about? He wrote it about this beautiful thing that God had done through his son, Jesus Christ, and sending him into the world, taking on flesh, giving his life for us as a perfect atonement for our sin. It's a beautiful thing. It's something that those of us who have come to understand the beauty of what Jesus had done for us and who he was, when we came to him, it's an easy thing to say, I do. I need you, Jesus. I'm a sinner. I've done things wrong. And standing before God one day is very uncomfortable if you're guilty for your own sin. But because of what Jesus has done for me in taking upon my sin upon himself and allowing himself to be nailed to a cross as the punishment for sin, taking his perfect righteous record and saying, I will exchange your filthy rags for my perfection before God's eyes. That's something that those of us who have understood that truth, we can say, I do, and we're excited about the I do, On the day where we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, John wrote his gospel to let us know that we need to believe in Jesus as Savior. But he wrote this epistle of 1 John because he was concerned about the church living it out. He was concerned about all the things that are gonna try and erode that faithfulness on the part of the church. Just like in a marriage, there are, there are things that come at you, circumstances that arise that threaten your commitment to one another. Certainly in our world, living out our faith in Jesus, there are all kinds of things working against that. Are there not? Listen to the very words at the end of his epistle. The final s- verse in 1 John is an is a interesting one because it kind of he leaves it like hanging there. Listen to what he says. He says, Little children. This is because he's an old man, and he sees all of these people that he's helping to encourage as a bishop over the church. Like I said earlier, he's in Ephesus. There's a bunch of churches in that area that were planted by the Apostle Paul, and now he's overseeing them in Paul's absence. And he's concerned, and he says, you're you're like my children in the faith. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Man, Ephesus, the place where he lived, it was the epicenter of idolatry of that day. They had a, one of the seven wonders of that world, a temple to Artemis, to Diana, different goddesses that existed in that day in the, in the Greek culture. And they would worship, and, they, and the whole, there were so many jobs. The economy was centered around the worship of these idols. And in the midst of this circumstance, God had called out a people for himself to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to be witnesses in that world for him. And yet John knew there's so many forces working against you in the culture in which you live. So little children, guard yourselves from idols. How are we going to guard ourselves from idols? How are we going to be faithful to live out the I do to Jesus Christ in this world? That's what this letter's all about. That's what this letter's all about. And so I believe as he comes to the the summary of this epistle, this this letter he's written to the church, I believe there are five things he wants to go back over. Five things that he wrote in his letter that we just heard, proclaimed. Five areas where he says, you gotta know this. If you're going to be faithful to your I do, to Jesus Christ, you gotta be faithful. Totally convinced about five areas. Be solid on them. Be rock steady. Don't let anything take you off mission of these five convincing truths. Number one, he wants them to know that through Christ, we have eternal life. Listen to verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh, if we could only know that we have eternal life, would that change everything? It would. We'd start living for eternity. We wouldn't be wrapped up in in our materialistic world because we would recognize all of that stuff is not gonna last. All of those things will perish in the end. We can't take one thing with us. So why would we be consumed with idols? Why would we be wrapped up in the things that that the world says satisfies when we recognize that the true satisfaction comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he provides us? That's the truth that John knew. That's why John was faithful to Christ, even into his 90s, even as he was boiled in water and miraculously survived, even as he was exiled to an island of Patmos. They couldn't kill him, so they got rid of him. This was a man who was convinced that he had life and nobody could take it from him. He had life in Jesus. Are we convinced? Are we grounded in the eternal life that God has provided us? Are we chasing idols? Number two, we have effective prayer. Listen to the way it's described here in verse 14. Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have What we have asked for, asked him for. Wow. Can you imagine having access to the creator of the universe? Being able to be not only submitting our request to someone that powerful and that amazing, but having the attention of that person, the, the concern of that person, and that person's love and affection poured out on us. Do you realize that's what we have in Christ through God the Father? Do you realize that we can go before the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we are heard, knowing that He is attentive to our requests? Do we take advantage of that? Do we really believe that prayer can change things? What is effective prayer? Effective prayer means this. God promises to be attentive to you. Wow, why? Because you're impressive, because you can pray some really cool prayers? No, no, because he loves you and because he sees you through his son, Jesus Christ, and the perfection that he deposited into your life, heart, and account. That's why. There is one mediator between God God the Father and mankind, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when we go to the Father in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, he listens as if it was Jesus himself making the request. That's the attention that God gives you when you bow your knee in prayer, if you're in his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, God promises to answer you. Listen to this. We can ask anything, He hears us, and if if we know that he hears us, we also know that we have what we have asked him for. God promises to give us an answer. It's kind of like, you know, when my children come to me and they make a request of me, I love my kids. I'm not always happy with them. I'm not always pleased. I'm not always excited about their different activities, but I am interested in what they're asking me as their dad. And my, my ear is attentive to them, if I can get off my phone. My ear, I'm not perfect like the father, father in heaven, right? I'm, I'm a human dad, so sometimes they have to go, dad, hello, right? And eventually, my ear is attentive to them. And I do love them, and I'm concerned about their request. But there becomes a point at which they ask me a question, and I, I certainly want to give them some sort of an answer. Sometimes that answer is No. Sometimes that answer is no. Why? Because I know, from my perspective as a dad, as someone who understands things a little deeper than they might, that what they're asking for is not maybe the best or a good idea or in alignment with what my hope and dream is for their life. It's the same with the Father. We can go to him and we ask the things and we're going to get an answer, but sometimes the answer is No. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is yes. But he will answer us because he's listening to us. God promises to act when we ask. Do you realize in John chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Do you realize that God wants us to ask before sometimes he's willing to give? It's conditional upon our ask. Not that God doesn't want us to have what he wants to give us, but he is waiting patiently in our free will for us to come to him and ask. Or maybe recognize that we need what he intended for us to enjoy. Do we ask? Because asking triggers our father to want to give. Effective prayer not only means those things, but it requires some things of us. Number one, it requires a clean conscience before God. God is not obligated to hear or answer the prayer of anyone who doesn't have a clear conscience before him. He states that clearly in his word. If we have sin in our lives, and we think we can just go to him as a magic genie, it doesn't work that way he first wants us to come into a place of confession. A place where we acknowledge, God, I've failed. I haven't done what I'm, I was supposed to do. And when we choose to ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's on that ground that we can now go to him and make a request. Prayer, effective prayer requires a clean conscience, before God. First John chapter 3, earlier in his letter, verses 21 through 24, talks about this. It says, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, if we've been obedient to obey his commands, we're getting right with him, now we can ask whatever we want. And we know that he will hear us if we ask in that mode. Number two, asking according to his will, right here. It says, whenever we ask anything, verse 14 of chapter 5, whenever we ask anything, what? There's a condition here. According to his will. That's important, right? He doesn't say you can ask for anything and I will hear you and give it to you. No. Many times we ask out of selfish motives, out of the wrong heart. We ask for things that aren't going to be good for our lives. He knows it, and he's not going to provide that. So we've got to learn and discern his will. What is his will? Well, his will is revealed all through Scripture. John has talked about his will, loving others the way he first loved us, obeying his commands, doing the things that being on mission for him the way he wants us to be on mission there's a lot of things that are according to his will. Many times we end up praying from a selfish will, from a place where we want something easier or better for our lives as as we see it. But God says, if I gave you that, you'd only drift further away from me. You'd only begin to pursue more idols. If I gave you that, that would misplace your heart. I would never give you I want you to pray according to my will. And number three, effective prayer requires asking in the name of Jesus. Throughout Jesus' talk with the disciples in the upper room, in John chapter 13 through John chapter 16, Jesus over and over and over again tells them to pray in his name. Why? Because he's the only one through which God will listen to us. As I said earlier, there's only one mediator between God and man. If we don't pray in Jesus' name, we have no access to God's throne. Because you and I don't have standing alone before God. We have standing in Christ. So we must pray in Jesus' name. Then it goes on to talk about the sin that brings death. Anybody curious about this area? Raise your hand if you're curious. Good, because I'm still curious too. But I will bring up some things that um, I studied this week. Maybe it can lend some insight. I know that even after I studied, I'm still not 100%, but I will tell you this. Sin that brings death. Number one, we need to figure out what type of death is John writing about? What type of death? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Well. Physical death certainly can happen from sin. Can it not? When you do something sinful, could that lead to your demise physically? certainly could. There's even an example in Scripture where that took place. Somebody sinned, the Bible tells us, Ananias and Sapphira. You can read about it in the book of Acts. They came and they said, hey, we're going to give to Jesus and the church a bunch of money. We sold this property. We're going to give it all. And then they didn't give it all. They lied. And they held back some for themselves. God was serious about that that lie and and breaking that promise and, and deceiving, trying to deceive the apostles in their gift. And so it says that he struck them dead. That's some serious consequence for sin, right? Can God do that at times with our sin? He certainly can. And he has. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that while they were gathered for communion, some of them were weren't taking it seriously. They weren't taking the matter of God's body and blood seriously and it says some of them even slept. In other words, they they had died. God had allowed death to overcome them physically because they disrespected God's sacrifice through Jesus Christ. So there are, there is sin that can lead to physical death. I'm sure you could think of others that happen all the time. But there's also a sin that leads to spiritual death, right? And here's why I lean towards spiritual death. Throughout the the epistle of John here, this letter, he mentions life 13 times, seven times just in the final chapter. Every time he says life, he means spiritual life. He is focused on eternal life, this life that transcends the physical domain. He mentions death twice in the letter before this time. And both times that he mentions death is in uh, 1 John 3, uh, 3, I don't know if I wrote it down. I'll have, to, I'll have to find it later. But 1 John chapter 3, I believe, he mentions it twice before. And both times he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death that comes into our lives when we refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. And so why would he suddenly switch gear and start talking about a sin that leads to death, meaning physical death all of a sudden? I believe he's talking about a spiritual death, a death that begins to take us away from the life that God intends us to have. And so can a brother, can a, can a believer begin to make a decision to choose a lifestyle, to choose a path? that leads to his spiritual decay and death? Certainly, certainly. What is the sin? Is it forgivable or is it unforgivable? There seems to be an unforgivable sin. Do you remember in Mark chapter three, verse 29, Jesus mentions that there's one sin that is not forgivable and it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In that context, Jesus had just cast out demons, healed people through the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And, and then they accused him of being the devil, casting out devils. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? A house divided against itself cannot stand. I know you thought that was Lincoln, but that was Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Or maybe Lego Batman. No, it wasn't that either. Right? It was Jesus and he says there's no way that one one entity can cast out itself. It doesn't make any sense. And yet you guys are accusing me of working the things of the devil, but really it was the Holy Spirit's work that I just performed in someone's life. And that's unforgivable. Why is it unforgivable? Because you have taken the work of God and disregarded it. There's no forgiveness for that. You can't be forgiven. And so Jesus says, if you ever do that, if people are going to go down that path, they're in big trouble. You want to know a little bit more about that, read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. It's a very challenging passage in Scripture. It's a very deep truth. But it says that people who were once enlightened, who tasted of the goodness of what God brings into our lives, if they turn away, if they disregard the truth, there's no returning them to repentance So John is concerned with the church. He doesn't want them walking down that sin and that path because he knows that that can lead to death, erosion. And he's very concerned. But it could be physical death. I could be wrong. All the scholars could be wrong, and some of the other scholars could be right. It's going to be debated probably until we see Jesus. But I will say this, that I, I think that whatever that sin is, that we are to really avoid it. We are really to um, guard against committing it. And the the key here is he wants us praying for those who are wrapped up in sin, Things things that everyday life we do, right? He wants us as believers to pray for them, to help restore them, to help encourage them to turn away from their godlessness and turn back and give their attention to focusing on Jesus Christ. Back to our outline as as we get close to wrapping up this morning. Number three, not only do we have eternal life and effective prayer, we have endless victory. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God, speaking of Jesus, the one born of God, keeps him. In other words, guards him, keeps him secure. And the evil one does not touch him. Boy, is that security and victory or what? We have victory over sin, we have endless victory. It'll never end. We don't have to worry about being um, conquered or defeated because Jesus has secured our victory. We're on his team if we have faith in him. Number four, we have endless victory, but we also have extreme security. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. There are two camps, those that are found in Christ and those who are not. The ones who are in Christ are in the Father's hand and no one, the Bible tells us, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. They're secure. They're secure because they have placed sincere faith in the one who provided victory, Jesus Christ. Nothing can change that. Not even themselves can change that. It's a very powerful statement. Now, does it give us license to, well, I'm going to trust in Jesus and then do whatever I want? No. Because that doesn't come from the kind of heart that's sincere about their faith in Jesus, does it? It doesn't, right? So God wants us to be careful with trying to think that we can outsmart him or outmaneuver him. That's not our goal. Our goal is to stay faithful to the one who has provided us security and provided us victory. Finally, as we wrap up this morning, we have extraordinary wisdom. The fifth one, the fifth thing that we need to be focused on, the confident in, to avoid a life where we're chasing idols. Let's know that we have eternal life. Let's live it out. Let's know that we have effective prayer. Let's go before the throne of grace regularly and confidently asking God, according to his will. We know that we have endless victory. Nothing can ever defeat us or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Quit quit panicking in life. Quit being worried about everything. God has you. God has you. There's not one thing that can touch you that he doesn't allow into your life for a good reason, for an eternal and divine reason. And we need to trust him with that and not run around in panic and in fear. We have extreme security. Nothing, like I said earlier, can separate us from God's love. And finally, we have extraordinary wisdom. Listen to the way he concludes his letter. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, that word there, wisdom. He's given us wisdom in which to operate or navigate our lives so that we may know the true one, we are in the true one that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you realize that if you've had your eyes open to Jesus Christ, you are blessed and you have wisdom. Wisdom to navigate this life. Wisdom to live out your faith. John is concerned not about the I do. Certainly his, his um, gospel was written for anyone who's in this room or around the world that doesn't know who Jesus Christ is, hasn't placed his faith or her faith in him, read the gospel of John. It's John's heart to say, this is who I walked around with for three and a half years. This is what I saw with my own eyes. This is what I heard with my own ears. This is the experience that I had from a guy who I was hanging out with, who was not just an ordinary dude, He was clearly God in the flesh. I saw his death. I was there at the cross. Everybody else had fled. I was still there. I witnessed them kill him. He was crucified. But it seemed like he gave up his life. No one could take it. And then three days later, I saw him alive again. I saw the scars in his hands and his feet. Let me tell you, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. This letter that we've studied the last several months in church, it's all about those of you who have said, I do, to the great I am, are you going to live it out? Do you have confidences that you are just grounded in? And no one's going to shake those confidences because you are assured of who Jesus is and what he's given you, and you're going to focus your life around those. You're going to live it out every day. You're going to say, I do, for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for the truth of your word, the effectiveness of your word, God, and the challenge that it provides not only myself but everyone in this room. God, help us to not chase idols, to keep our lives free from the love of idols, money, pleasure. God, you've given a lot of those things for us to use and enjoy, but in their proper place, beneath allegiance to you. God, help us to make you, once again, our number one. Once again, the one that we adore, that we worship, both in spirit and in truth. God, help us. If there's anyone in this room, who, like me, had to spend a week thinking about ways that I've strayed, ways that I've gone off path from you, God, help us to be honest, to confess, to ask for your forgiveness. You are faithful, you are good, and you are just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to bring us back into a place, a place where we can enjoy the fellowship that you've given us your son, Jesus. God, let this moment of response be about that. In Jesus' name, amen.